I'm going to change the, the hosting rights then. <clears throat> Are we good to go on Facebook? Yeah, I'm about to do it right now. on Facebook. All right. Should we wait a few minutes or are we ready to get going? What do you think, Stosky? Stosky, you ready? You're still on mute. Yep, I'm ready. Let's get going. So just text Hannah just to make sure she jumps back in. Um, hello, everyone. As we come live again, we always have to do tech checks before we jump in live. But we are here again with our, I'm lost, Ahmad, what number webinar is this? I think it's eight, eight or nine. Eight or nine. Wow. Well, welcome to our, our eight, nine, almost 10 webinar, which we talk all things generational wealth. Um, when we talk about generational wealth, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about building legacies for our families, our communities, um, us as black and brown people. No matter if you're Native American, Filipino, if you're African American, Nigerian, and one thing that we look at and we truly understand now today, because it's 2021 and it's right in your face, we truly understand that there is a wealth gap between people of color and people that is not as considered a white. And there's systematic situations that's happening um, that's not allowing us to build this generational wealth. But comes knowledge, comes the ability to change that. And that's not when we created this group, the Black and Brown Financial Wealth Group. The group is built to build knowledge, share knowledge, um, build information on a platform that we can share how we can gain that, whether it's through stocks, whether that's through uh, health insurance, life insurance, or as we're going to talk today about real estate. Uh, with that said, uh, we have four, I think, yeah, four, four great speakers today. Uh, Rachel, Sharon, Denise, and Helena, uh, who are here that they're going to talk about real estate, uh, owning versus renting. Uh, with that said, uh, we're going to go right down the list. Uh, I'm going to allow you to introduce yourselves. Uh, Helena, can we begin with you? Oh, you gotta unmute yourself. Hi, can you hear me now? Sure can. All right, I'm Helena Perez from Douglas Elliman Real Estate. I've been a realtor for about six years now. I've done over a hundred transactions and my specialty is working with first time home, bu home buyers 
part of my mission this year is to get 60 renters on the path to home ownership because I was one not that long ago and my mom was one not that long ago too and now we're homeowners and we can see how just a few good decisions can really impact several generations of a family for the better so I'm here to help and Sharon, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, everyone. It is really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Sharon Dyer, Associate Broker of Avalon Real Estate. Um, I recently just launched my own real estate company, Anchor of Hope Real Estate Professionals. So I'm really excited about that. I've been licensed for six years and um, I think I really fell in love with real estate 15 years ago when someone prompted me to purchase a home and I, I just never thought it was possible. I, I didn't think I could do it. And, you know, I went for it, I did it. And it was the best decision that I, I, I had ever done. And I went on to purchase three more properties and I, I just, think it's an amazing um, investment. So, Awesome. Uh, Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So thank you for having me. I am Rachel Riccone. I'm based in the Los Angeles area. And this is officially my first year as an agent out here. So um, one year in. And for me, this whole uh, presentation really hits home because I still am a renter. So that's my goal to be able to move into home ownership. And, um, you know, every month that, you know, the first of the month comes around, I'm just like, why am I paying somebody else's mortgage? So going through this, I think it's just helpful to kind of visualize what it is as a renter, how much money you're actually just kind of throwing away rather than investing in yourself and building that wealth. We also have one more person, Denise. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, can you hear me? I'm Denise. Hi, Denise. Give us Hi. a little bit of background. Who are so you? So basically, I'm, uh, I'm sorry my picture isn't coming through. I have a new laptop and I can't figure it out at the moment. But um, yes, I've been in the business for a long time, over 20 years. Um, my philosophy when I deal with homeowners is that I like to educate them on the lending process. Um, a lot of First time buyers, of course, want the big, beautiful home on the west side, but you know, a lot of times they can't afford to do that. So I'm like, hey, it's your first home. Let's just get you in the home. And then I really try to explain the process of what it takes to get into a home financially. You know, just because you can pay higher rent doesn't necessarily mean that you can afford that mortgage when the lender looks at your paperwork. So I'm really into educating. And like I said, I, I've owned a number of homes in my life. I have flipped homes, I have done wholesaling, so I've done a broad spe uh, spectrum of things in the real estate market. Awesome. So let's jump right into this. Um, I see that you have a presentation. And the immediate question I'm going to ask, since this is, this is the Black and Brown Financial Wealth Group, is uh, we posted, the, this is our second webinar about real estate. Um, and, and during that time, we learned that more and more than more than not, people that are black and brown uh, tend not to purchase their home. Um, and we want to dive into that. Like, why is it 
a thing of fear or or a thing of you know is this equity this seems more of a, a time management than something that is equity and anything else why is there a pushback or a fear within our black and brown communities of why owning is something that's not talked about more in a family household Well, I'll jump right in. Uh, in my household, uh, I grew up in New York City, and New York City is not really a culture of ownership. It's a culture of apartment dwelling. Um, the prices in New York, because real estate is so limited, are prohibitive, and so you there are people who own homes clearly, but it's more in the outlier areas. And because I spent most of my formative, uh, you know, young adulthood in Manhattan, it just didn't seem realistic. Um, but it, it's also something where it's a very abstract concept owning a home if you've never owned one before or if you don't see it in your family you kind of tend to do what your family has done before and so it becomes a bit of a cycle that's very that's that's very true I mean I would love to jump in and just share my experience growing up I didn't have any you know my mom or my dad didn't own homes so it wasn't something that was talked about in in my family it wasn't something that as i became older that um i was encouraged to do so you know at 25 when someone outside of my family encouraged me to do it it was just it was mind boggling it was like wow like you know but i, I felt like I felt excited because I was like, you know, I would actually be the first person in my immediate family to own a home. I mean, my granddad owned a home that he had for over 30 years, but that was the only person that I knew in my family that had owned a home. So um, I, I think that's how I would answer that question. It was, it just, a lot of times it's just not something that you know, you grow up seeing in 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 your your, your black family. Anyone want to add to that before I, I move right into the presentation? Because um, the the question I I have for myself is that I remember my great grandmother had a property down in South Carolina, and then I remember being young. We were all my my cousins, myself, who had to be probably 11, 12 years old. And when she passed, the family was saying, well, let's sell the property, let's sell the land. There was a lot of land. And I remember us cousins were saying, why sell it? Keep it, keep it. You know, we go on vacation trips down there and the family was like, well, no, we have to maintain it. We just don't have the money to maintain it. Uh, we'd rather just sell it because it seems like a hassle. And now being older, I was like, wow, that was generational wealth that was just let go. Uh, but then again, the family did not were not prepared to have that house handed to them, uh, educationally and nor financially. Um, so that's just some of the topics that we'll love to discuss today. But you have a, a great presentation here. Um, let's go ahead and dive right into it. So I will introduce the slides and then I'll let everyone jump in and kind of speak to it a little bit more. But the benefits of owning, um, I think, really come down to the equity that you can build and your overall wealth. So the st statistics say that as a homeowner, your net worth can be over 40 times that of a renter. 
and the average um, equity built last year as a homeowner was 17,000. So the way the market is right now, things are selling like crazy. It is definitely a seller's market. And if you have a home to sell, you're in a very good place because there's 30 people that want your home. So that alone is, you know, appreciating properties like crazy. If you just own a home and maintain it well, then you'll really have that equity to dive into. Um, there's tax incentives that you can write off. Um, you can deduct your mortgage interest and property taxes. And one thing I think a lot of people don't consider as a renter is your monthly payment is not fixed. So your landlord can decide um, up to whatever your rent control is to raise your rent each month where if you have a 15 or 30 year mortgage, you know what you'll pay for the next 30 years, unless you refinance and get a lower interest rate, things like that. Your cost each month is relatively the same. Anyone wanna jump in on that? Okay, so another um, thing that you can really lean on with home ownership is the freedom to customize it and remodel in whichever way you choose. So as renters, we're limited to, you know, maybe adding some paint that you'll have to paint back at some point. Um, the structure is pretty much what it is. You can't knock down a wall um, unless you have a, you know, very forgiving landlord. Um, and then you can leverage the equity in your home. So we can dive into this um, a bit more, but once you do have that equity, you can pull money out um, in a home equity loan or line of credit. And the key here is to use it responsibly. Um, there's a lot of people that pull money out of their homes and then go buy a boat or a car, which is a depreciating asset. Um, so really what you should be doing here is setting yourself up for success, maybe investing in another property. So, you know, pulling money out from one home and adding it into an investment property where you get that cash flow and uh, it allows you to continue building more equity. Yeah, I want to just jump in here with um, what Rachel was saying, and I completely agree. I was able to um, buy a condo when I was in my 20s, and then I was able to leverage that and buy a four-unit building in Inglewood. So I think that um, that's a great uh, strategy to have in terms of leveraging your, you know, whatever your current home is, taking the money out and buying another home. So I think that's a great strategy. So it's that additional revenue opportunity for families to have. Yes, exactly. You can you can take your money out, put them down payment, and then, like you said, you'll generate income from. Hopefully, you'll buy units. You know, if you're buying investment properties, I like the fact that if somebody moves out, you're still collecting rent versus a single family. So I definitely love the, you know, get your primary home first and then buy units. Typically, that's how people operate unless you're, you know, um, have a different strategy and you're okay with, you know, buying units first. That would be the best strategy, obviously. Then you can take that money and help build more equity and more money to buy your primary home. But a lot of people like to buy their primary first and then get into investment. As a side note here, this is actually one reason that we saw uh, the housing market crash 
in you know the 2008 era is because people were borrowing too much money against their homes. The lending standards were a lot less strict. So, for example, if your home was worth a hundred thousand, you could take out a hundred twenty-five thousand. Um, you could take out hundred twenty-five percent against your property um, loan to value. Where now it's typically about seventy percent loan to value. So they've really That's learned true. from from their mistakes on that. Yeah, and they have the no income, no asset. You could just say your dog walker making one hundred and fifty thousand. They didn't verify anything, so that was really impactful. But now you do have to have skin in the game. They do verify your credit. They do verify that you have some money. So it's a it's a different lending environment than what it was in two thousand eight, for sure. Definitely. So I I wanted to add one thing here to your slide, Rachel where it talks about fixed housing expenses. Okay, so everyone here on this call, I'm sure has been a renter at one point or another. And everyone on this call has gotten that notice in the, in the post box that says, your rent is going up. And everyone has had that feeling in the pit of their stomach of like, really, again? And just thinking to themselves, what am I really getting for this money? And I want to tie everything that we talk about today back to how does this affect me? Um, because a lot of times as professionals and as people who do things every day, we tend to talk in um, terms that we feel comfortable with because they're very neutral and they explain things in a way that you can Google them. But I want to be really clear to tie it back to an actionable and concise step that you can take to create multi-generational wealth through property. And the one thing that I need to underscore for everyone here is that a there, there is no rent control like a mortgage, okay? You can live in any rent control town, in any rent control situation, but that is a finite and movable target. At some point, someone in government or in business will lobby to change that rent control law. And you may find yourself in a game of musical chairs where there are no chairs left. So think about that. Think about how a mortgage is 30 years of rent control. It is a way of understanding exactly what you're gonna pay over the course of the time that you live there and what does that do? It has several effects. It allows you to plan your expenses so you know what your expenses are. It allows you peace of mind so that you know that you're going to be able to pay those expenses. So just on those two levels alone, we're already talking about mental health. <laughs> we're talking about financial well-being. Um, so just think about that. Think about how there's no rent control like a mortgage. stability I think is important too just being able to rely on that and you know some people live in single family homes that are rentals and given the market now their landlord might be like well I'm just gonna sell so good luck um, all right so this slide I think is a good representation of how much money you really can make just as a homeowner so the average household wealth as a renter is about fifty two hundred dollars um, versus when you own a home, the average wealth is about 
500,000. So that's you know over 40 times the amount just by owning a property. And you know, you're gonna be paying towards something anyway. Um, it might as well be towards your own savings and um, accounts. That is a big, that's a big difference. That is such a big difference. And so with knowing that this, like you would have this much more wealth, why is it so that more people mostly in bigger cities such as LA and New York, choose to rent versus going to find somewhere somewhere that they can afford to live uh, or own and buy. What what is what make what is the I guess if I could draw a line, a solid line, what's the gap that's allowing people not to say, Oh, I need to own and I'm I'm speaking for myself because I need to think about, you know, the next three years. I, I should be owning a property. I should not be renting anymore question and I'm going to skip ahead to this slide. I think people just don't realize that what they pay in rent is what they could possibly pay in a mortgage. Um, you know, home ownership, I think people think that it's out of reach for them, that it's not something that they could, you know, easily obtain. Um, so this is just an example of the top five cities where it's more affordable to buy than it is to rent. So I think really looking at these numbers, um, now of course the median list price in these proper, or in these towns um, are much lower than what we may see in Los Angeles. But you know, the average monthly rent versus what you can pay towards your, your own mortgage, I think is kind of eye-opening. Um, that there's you know not much of a difference, or you're paying more in rent. And this is based on paying 20% down. So of course, you know, that's one thing to consider and we can dive into that a little bit more um, further in, but it's it's important to take a look and compare these numbers. And even in Los Angeles, there there's tons of opportunity here. I think like Denise mentioned, if you think about your home as an investment and as an opportunity to actually have income, two things are key there. One is it's not just based on your income. So in my particular case, my first home was a duplex. I lived in one, I rented out the other one. I was able to qualify for more money to purchase the home than I would have had I had a single family home. The other thing to think about in Los Angeles or in other markets that are extremely expensive, rent is also extremely expensive. So it's not like you can actually rent for less than buying. Buying is expensive, renting is expensive. So there may be opportunities in outlier areas that are not yet developed where you can afford to buy something because LA is 70% renter. So someone will rent there. Just something to think about. And just going back here, another visual for you. Um, this was the um, average equity gain last year. 
So, you know, in the more expensive states, more equity was gained. So in California, $34,000 in equity was gained last year. Um, the green is over 30,000. You have the dark blue is 20 to 30,000. Um, this is kind of medium blue, 10 to 20. And this light blue, zero to 10,000. And red is zero. So nowhere here. Nowhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> interesting to see there. Definitely. <clears throat> Sharon, do you want to speak to this one? I I really love this slide because it it, you know, it really brings it into perspective for you when you look in the 1500 a month is um again I'm, I'm based in virginia the virginia area so that's our average rental um price in virginia of, of course i'm sure in california it's even more than that but if we just take 1500 a month and you know over a 12 month period you've paid you know eighteen thousand. so you know each year you're giving away eighteen thousand. And if you just if you if you take that eighteen thousand and times it by five in five years, you've paid ninety thousand dollars to your landlord. And versus if you were owning in you know the average uh, home price in Virginia is about three hundred thousand. So we we were using that number if you. 300,000 in five years, the value has increased to 350, but you've paid down the mortgage to 250. So instead of throwing away 90,000, you've, you've gained equity. You now have equity in your home that, you know, you can use. So I think that that's a great visual to really put things in perspective about you know just in within five years of renting what you have thrown away versus if you were owning what you could have gained in five years so sharon speaking about equity and, and just you know the overall advantage of it what about the tax incentives uh, as a renter what tax incentives do you get versus owning a home especially right now since it's tax season Right, exactly. There, there's no tax incentives for renting, but um, I will say that, you know, over the course of these 15 years that I've been a homeowner, you know, um, each year I'm able to um, deduct the uh, mortgage interest that I've paid on my home throughout the year during tax time. So there's definitely incentives for um, you know tax incentives for owning, and there's no tax incentives when you're renting. I heard a pretty crazy uh, statistic before. Out here, I would say I know a lot of people that pay over three thousand a month in rent. If they're you know have a roommate and they're they're splitting the rent, they may pay about fifteen hundred dollars each. Um, so. If you are a lifelong renter and you pay about that much for, let's say, 30 years, you've paid over a million dollars in rent in your lifetime. So, 
yeah so that's pretty um heartbreaking for for us that are currently renters that you know you're basically um you know an employer paying your employee who probably does not a lot for your unit or your property i know some landlords like barely even respond if you have an issue at, at your home so really all they did is buy the property and you're paying their mortgage plus some each month um so it's, it's kind of sad when you think about it that way but it's also eye-opening definitely okay so one reason this market has been so hot this year is because interest rates have been historically low. So what does that mean um, for you? It is now cheaper to borrow money, which means you can afford more house. So your interest rate will depend on um, your loan amount, your credit score, what type of property it is. But just taking a look at over the years, you know, it used to be in the double digits for interest rates back in the 80s um, when some of our you know, parents or grandparents were buying properties. They were paying a lot more each month just in interest. Um, it hit closer to the mid twos last year and it's started to creep up again to the low threes. Um, but in the big picture, it's still very low. So it's a great time to buy because you can get more house, which you can see here. Um, oops. Going up here, it's kind of faint, but it's in gray. This is almost the same monthly payment, but based on the interest rate over here, this is how much house you can afford. So a 3.75 interest rate for just over $2,000, you can buy a $450,000 property, but that's um, almost same payment of just over 2,000 at a 2.75 interest rate, you can afford $50,000 more in a house. So that is what interest rates mean for you. That thing is that in LA, that is typical rent for probably a one bedroom. Um, yeah, and the rates are still good, you know, even though they are, you know, going up some, the rates are still, you know, FHA is still in the 2% uh, range. So you, I just quoted somebody yesterday at 2.99 and they were going to get a uh, $9,700 credit to help with their closing costs. Wow. So that's something else to think about as well. You know, if somebody might be a little short on their closing costs, we can increase the rate and get money on the back end to assist with their closing costs. So I was like, wow, $9,700, that is huge to help somebody pay for their closing costs. And if they don't need it, I mean, even at 2.75, the lender was still offering 5,700. So it is still a great time, you know, to buy a home, great rates. And like I said, if you need the credit to help with the closing costs, the money is still there. Speak a little bit about what FHA is and um, why that is, important for people to, to know about? Sure. So typically, um, most clients come in, they want to do a low down payment. So with FHA, um, 
you can put down three and a half percent. It allows for a lower a lower FICO score. Typically, I've seen down to 580. Um, so for some lenders, um, most lenders are like 620, but there are some lenders that will go down to a 580. It also allows you to have a higher back end ratio. So your debt to income ratio is what the lender looks at. Also, in 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 um, in addition to your credit. So guidelines for FHA is 50% typically, but um, let me explain what that is. So basically we're taking your new mortgage plus any installment or revolving debt, and we divide that by your gross income, and that gives us a number. So FHA guidelines will say 50%. However, if we're able to send you through the desktop underwriting system, and if your um, backing ratio is 55% and the computer likes your, your package, we can still get you approved. So it just kind of depends on, you know, your overall profile if we're able to take you above 50% debt to income ratio. If you went with a conventional loan, then you have to put 50% down, I'm sorry, 5% down. And then the requirements change. You have a higher FICO score. You can't go over 50%, in some case, 45% on your debt to income ratio. So those are the main two things. FHA allows you to have much more purchasing power and it allows you to have some credit issues, whereas conventional might be a little bit more strict. Um, in addition to that, you also are going to have what they call mortgage insurance. Anytime you put less than 20% down for conventional, you're going to have mortgage, you're going to have a monthly mortgage insurance. This is like to protect the bank. When you go FHA, you're going to have what they call an upfront mortgage insurance, and you're going to have a monthly mortgage insurance. So for instance, let's say you're going to buy a house for 100000 you put 5000 down, you think your loan amount is 95000 However, with FHA, they do have an upfront mortgage insurance, so your loan amount is $97,000. And then plus, you're going to have a monthly insurance, monthly mortgage insurance along with your uh, principal and interest payment, your hazard insurance, and your property taxes. So Denise, for, for a person that does not own a home and that's kind of still kind of scary, like, well, how much money do I need? All that to me sounds like well, that's more money that I need to have. Well, that's more money that I need to have. Well, do I have that money to do this? Um, and and how how do you know that that's when the fear starts kicking in? Do I have enough money to be able to do this? Plus, maintain the house uh, if something happens, if the water heater goes down or whatever. Um, for the person, the average person, um, how can you how can you communicate that this is not something that you should be afraid of? This is something that can be done as long as you follow certain steps if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Well, typically I just kind of share with them, if let's say they're just completely not prepared, they don't really have that mon much money saved up. So what I'll do, I'll sit down with them or chat with them on the phone basically and tell them, look, um, you want to buy a you know a four hundred thousand dollar home? This is what it's going to take for the down payment. This is what it's going to take for the closing costs to get into the property. Now we have several ways to help you get into the property. Like I said, with lender credit, or you can get gift money, or you can um, have the seller. I don't mean in this kind of market it might be tough with the sellers because it's so competitive. Um, so I kind of share with them what it's going to take and what kind of credit they're going to need, and that like you said with the renting situation more than likely your mortgage with all of that is going to be probably less than rent you know especially if you're renting in LA 
you know, your rent might be 3000 3500 but if you move out a little bit, your payment can be, you know, um, $2,000, $2,200. So it's really a savings. You know, you kind of share that with them. Plus, you have the tax benefit. So you can claim more and get more money back. So although it might be a little scary, um, I just try to, you know, reassure them that the overall picture is a better situation than renting and that they would really um, see the benefits of that. When I first bought my condo, I could, I was staying at home for the, no more shopping at Nordstrom's. I had to stay home, you know, but after the first year, it was nothing to make that $1,100 payment. And you'll see as time goes by, that payment becomes nothing. You're like, oh, this is nothing. So you just try to reassure them and educate them like, this is a much better strategy than paying rent because rent's going to keep going up, as Elena says. But for the most part, your mortgage is going to stay the same. You know, your property taxes might go up, your hazard insurance might go up. But overall, your principal and interest payment is because it's normally going to be fixed for 30 years. That's not going up. Yeah, I, if I could just add one thing that is so liberating is just find out because I have so many clients and honestly, I was one who felt I'll never really be able to do that. That's beyond my capacity. And, or, oh, I have too much debt or, oh, I'll never be able to get that down payment together. And it literally took me five years to ask someone. And when I asked someone, it turns out that not only could I do it, but I could do it that week. And they gave me some ideas of steps that I could take to make, to qualify for even more money than I thought I could. And I thought back to myself, if only I had taken a step five years ago when I first thought of this and houses were cheaper, <laughs> I might've even been able to do better. But just find out you know right here is great but there are people out here willing and able to help you willing and able to hold your hand tell you exactly what you need to do assess where you currently are with just asking you 10 questions and then you'll know then you'll know for sure and then you can put a game plan in place on how to accomplish what you want to do. You know, you'll now you like uh, Elena said, Helena said, yes, you know. That's the key is asking for help and not being afraid to start that conversation. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, maybe we're embarrassed that we don't have as much money as we think that we should have or you know, we see everyone flaunting on Instagram that they got all this and we don't have all that, but you know, there's always a way to meet our goals. Um, and I think just kind of having that discipline to, you know, if you want to one day own a home, start putting processes in place to reach that. Um, so I just added a couple ways to save here. Um, the transferring your savings to a high yield account. Um, I actually just did this last week. I realized that my, um, the interest that I was being given on my savings account was about 0.04% a year. So basically nothing. Um, 
And then I transferred it to a savings account where it's a high yield. So it's about 0.5% each year. So it doesn't seem like a huge difference, but it, it, it does add up. Um, something else that's worked for me is being disciplined to transfer a weekly amount into my savings. So whether it's, you know, $10 a week, $50 a month, something like that, just a consistent transfer that I'll set aside money and make sure that I, I put it towards, you know, something that I can use in the future. And another thing that I just discovered is the You Need a Budget app. So this was uh, really eye-opening for me once I wrote down all of my expenses each month because it really does add up. And a lot of people last year saved some money by not eating out, but now things are starting to open up a little bit. You're like, I wanna go to happy hour. So when you start going to those weekly happy hours and now all of a sudden you're spending $500 a month on going out, um, you don't really realize that until you write it all down and, and see that maybe you're not saving as much money as you could just because you're blowing through the cash each month. So Rachel, Ahmad brought up a good question. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about inflation. Will inflation impact the first time home homeowners? So my understanding of inflation is, you know, when we see inflation, hopefully um, as a homeowner, your home price will increase as well. Um, we also like to assume that people will be making more with inflation, but you know, seeing the minimum wage that's not changed federally in quite some time, that's not always the case. Um, but as a homeowner, I believe that you know it will just continue to appreciate for your property. Um, but as a first-time home homeowner, it, it's possible that it could create a larger gap, and you know. If anyone wants to to add to that, please do. Well, yeah, the way that I understand it is inflation is yield, right? So what happens is in a low interest environment like we've been in for the last five to eight years, um, you're not getting, that's why you were getting zero, that's why you were getting 0 0.04 on your savings. As inflation begins to happen, what happens is yields tend to increase so uh you'll end up seeing higher savings account rates and returns so when so when you showed that chart of of interest rates being really high for loans what was also going on at that time is bank accounts were paying high interest yields as well and money market accounts were paying high interest yields as well and cds were paying 12 and 13 percent so there is sort of an offset that happens when there is inflation but yes in the short term prices do go up for things and historically if we look at incomes they don't keep pace so incomes don't increase as inflation happens in pricing so So I think one thing that people don't realize when they start, you know, their home search, and this is kind of what we touched on already, is speaking with a lender so you can run those numbers and determine not only what you can qualify for, but what you're comfortable paying each month. 
So, you know, just because you qualify for $500,000 doesn't mean you necessarily only need to look at properties that are $500,000. Especially in the market that we're in, things are going crazy over asking price. So if you're only looking at properties that are within your max range, you may get outbid pretty quickly. Um, And this is also important to have once you start making offers because it shows the seller that you're serious, you're qualified, you're ready to go if they do accept your offer. Um, And you'll have kind of that peace of mind to know what range you should be looking at. Everybody likes to look at Zillow, but when it comes to, you know, actually getting out there and starting to look at properties, you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste, you know, the the seller's time. So um, make sure that you actually do your due diligence and, and get this taken care of. And your lender will be able to kind of guide you in the right direction. If maybe you can't qualify for as much as you thought you could, because your credit score is not where it needs to be, um, or your debt to income ratio is too high, they can really pinpoint what you need to do to get you where you need to be. This is what I typically see that's required for pre-approval. Just so you're aware, you'll need to send in um, your ID, tax returns, two months of bank statements, recent pay stubs, asset statement. And with your credit check, they'll really take a look at utilization. Um, If you you have five credit cards and they're all at 90% uh, utilization, it's probably important to get those down closer to 30% or under prior to moving forward. And Denise knows more about this than I do. Yes, I just wanted to interject that um, typically if you're working at a W-2 job, we don't need your tax returns. We can definitely just go by your last two uh, W-2s. We only tend to get your tax returns if you're self-employed and you do have to have two years tax returns if that's the case. Um, So I wanted to um, bring that to your attention. So yeah, tax returns aren't necessarily uh, necessary if you have a W-2 job. Um, Bank statements the same with FHA, they they don't, just so you can know the difference for FHA, they don't require any reserves. If you do a conventional loan, they want two months reserves. So after you have your down payment and your closing costs, Um, they want to see that you have two months of payment left over in your bank. So if your payment is $2,500, which includes taxes and insurance, then they're going to want to see $5,000 in the bank after you pay your down payment and closing costs. So that's just the difference um, between conventional and FHA. FHA, they don't require that. So you don't have to have as much money. So, and also one of the things that I do when I speak to my clients especially if they're first time buyers, you know, I try to find out where they are comfortable, you know, cause you, you want to know, like she said, maybe they're buying, maybe they're qualified for five or 600, but because the market is so competitive, you know, they might have to buy, uh, come in at 400 and, and bid up a little bit in order to get the property. And then you also want to know that they are going to be comfortable with the payment because mentally they've, they've been paying this rent and so they're only going to typically want to go up a little bit more but sometimes you do have to say hey if you want this kind of home this is what it's going to take and the bank is not going to let you qualify um get you into something you don't qualify for there if anything they're going to be more conservative especially after the 2008 crash you know where we could do all those crazy loans and whatnot they are definitely a lot more conservative so 
that brings us into buying a starter home because um, you know one thing that we had talked about yesterday when we were going through this is a lot of times you know your starter home might not be very instagrammable but it's yours and the goal is to just get you out of the rental market and start building that equity so I think the key here is you know not buying the nicest house on the block because if you are you know surrounded by other not so nice homes that brings the value of your home down but if you buy, you know, a property that maybe needs some work in a really nice neighborhood, but, you know, surrounded by great homes, um, don't pay attention to the orange carpets and, you know, the, the blue paint inside. Those are all fixable. Um, things <coughs> that are cosmetic can be easily fixed. And then you really put in that sweat equity. That's why flipping is such a huge business now because, you know, all of these people see this ugly house and they're like, I don't want that. Um, but if you put in, let's say, $20,000 of just cosmetic work, um, all of a sudden it's a beautiful house that you would have paid $100,000 more for just because it's done. So I think that's the key here. Yes, I, I completely agree. And then also with the starter home, you try to tell people, most people, at least in California, they tend to buy a home every five to seven years. So is this just getting you into the market? let you you know get some build some equity and then you can either a take it out and buy investment or you can trade up and get into a nicer home so don't let that deter you from buying a home if you can't you know be in the best neighborhood and you know and, and have your beautiful dream home right. and why and why not put that equity in your own pocket because again with the flipping market there's so many people who are extracting capital from of commodity and then charging you back for it so basically yeah. you know why wouldn't you want to do that for yourself like wouldn't you want to buy a house hire someone to fix it and then it's worth more and now all of a sudden you spend 10 to get 50. right that's your equity now yes and it's true been seen um, working with buyers you know I always look into the history the, uh, the purchase history of the property and there's one I saw pretty recently where the sellers bought it last year I think it was less than 12 months ago and um, they ended up getting over hundred thousand dollars more for their property and it was in the exact same condition as they bought it in so wow. just how crazy the market Ooh. is how quickly things are appreciating great for those sellers um, because they, they really just, you know, paid a year's rent and then cashed out on $100,000. All right, so the not so fun stuff to consider, um, you know, this is important to keep in mind. Um, you know, once you decide that you're ready to buy a property, there are some upfront and closing cost things that you have to consider. So once you get an offer accepted, there will be some home inspections that you'll probably want to do just to make sure you know what you're buying and getting yourself into. Um, those can be a couple hundred dollars. Um, it is up to the buyer what you want to do, how many inspections you want to do, um, but it gives you a peace of mind um, to kind of you know, uncover what the house is looking like. Um, there will be appraisal fees. Your lender doesn't want to pay more for, for the house than it's worth, just like you don't. So they'll send an appraiser out to really assess the value of the home. Um, 
that's that cost your, your loan origination fees just getting a loan costs money you can pay down fees um, pay down points to get a lower interest rate and then there's title fees and insurance so typically um, i think it depends on the purchase price in the area but you can expect to pay somewhere between one and five percent of the loan amount in closing costs um, and again that, that depends on where you are and how much um, your loan is but it's just another thing to consider you'll need a little bit of a cushion there to, to cover these costs a quick question what is the benefits of escrow are there any drawbacks Um, so escrow is basically a, a neutral third party that hangs on to things of value while um, we're in the no negotiation period still. So typically three days after an accepted offer, you'll have to provide your initial deposit or earnest money deposit. Um, Sharon and I were talking last night in California, it's typically 3% of the purchase price, but in Virginia, it's much different. So that was, you know, pretty shocking to me that you can put as little as $500 down as your initial deposit. Um, but we're still negotiating once we're in escrow. So they, you know, hold on to these funds and don't release it to the seller until closing unless otherwise written into the contract. Um, but they basically just hold these documents and then they can also, you know, facilitate documents getting signed and make sure that everything runs smoothly in between. Escrow is basically there, uh, I'm sorry, um, escrow is basically there to protect the buyer and the seller. So they're gonna watch out for the seller and make sure the earnest money deposit is in and all the corresponding documents and the same thing for the buyer. It's a way for the buyer to be protected as well. So that's why you definitely, at least in California, um, I, I mean, other states are different. They might have attorney, closing attorneys or whatnot. But, you know, here in California, we do have escrow and it's a way to protect the buyer and the seller. Yeah, I think the only thing that you left out, Rachel, is that they execute the terms of the contract. So basically, when the buyer and seller sign a contract, there are stipulated dates and things that need to be met by each side. Escrow is the one that monitors that both sides have done what they say they're going to do. Another fun thing to, to think about is property taxes. So, um, you know, this is something that also led to the crash is people didn't account for their property taxes. Um, they're typically due twice a year, but I think the safe way to do it is pay it with your mortgage each month. So your monthly mortgage is also known as PITI or P-I-T-I. It's your principal, interest, taxes, and insurance and um, each city has their own tax rate. So in LA, property taxes are about 1.25% of the purchase price. And it's just important that these are paid because you know delinquent taxes can lead to a lien on your title. If you don't pay that, then you know they can foreclose on you. Um, just you know you want to make sure that everything's in order. So I think the best way to go about it is have it paid each month. And, and since we are talking about building multi-generational wealth, the other thing to know about taxes in California, at least, is that they never change. So you are always going to pay taxes 
based on your purchase price. So how that works to, to help you create wealth is if you buy your house for $100,000 and your taxes are $1,000 and your house five years from now is worth $500,000, your taxes are still going to be $1,000. And that was proper that was prop 13. so it's possible that prop 13 will be overturned it's not likely in the short term so this is a way that again you capitalize on home ownership by the increase in value does not is not proportional to the increase in costs so generous that's somewhere in virginia i just want to make sure that you know this is specifically for those who are living yes in that's just california for Virginia and if you live in another state like New York um, it might be different but I want to see Sharon is it similar in, in Virginia well in in Virginia the 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 tax rate it differs per city so Virginia Beach has a different tax rate than um, Portsmouth or or Norfolk so um, that can vary versus state and um, yeah, it, it is different. It the tax it when the house when the city assesses your home in the in they each year and the value increases, your tax rate increases. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how it is in Virginia. That's how it is in Texas as well. Yeah, that's interesting because I've driven through, you know, let's say Malibu where homes are 15 million dollars if they're new and then you know there's a home that's been there since the 50s right next door their neighbors probably paying two hundred thousand dollars in in taxes when they're paying like two thousand dollars in taxes so wow. it's pretty crazy that it can you know differ that much and that's if it stayed in the family um if it hasn't been sold in, in 50 or 60 years wow it's amazing mm-hmm all right, so that brings us to the end. Well, a couple of questions. Number yeah. one, if you're a first time buyer and you might have some family members that want to buy as well, or you might have some college buddies or some friends that you're, you're really, you know, you have a great relationship with, is there a way to, to co-buy? Uh, so it's not just your your money, you, you can buy it together with, you know, a, family and or uh, friends or, 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 you know, maybe even possible a business partner. Denise, do you want to speak at all about a group loan or, you know, ways that people can buy a property together? Sure. So there are certain, you know, you can always bring in a family member as a co-borrower and or a friend or a group of friends together. Um, one person can be the primary and the other um, associates or friends can either be co-borrowers as well, meaning that um, they're going to be on the loan with you. So we'll take, we'll pull everybody's credit. We go with the lowest middle FICO score and then we put all the debts and income together and that's how we come up with um, what you can qualify for. So if you are buying units, 
I think we said earlier in the conversation, you can take the the rents from the other units to help qualify as well. So that is one way that um, you can structure it where this person will be the primary and everybody else is a co-borrower. Then you can take the next person as the primary and everybody else is a co-borrower. You can kind of structure it like that and then try to build wealth amongst your group like that if you want to go that route, you know, in terms of being an owner-occupant property. If not, then can, everybody can be um, investors in terms of uh, if you do an investment property, it's typically 20% down versus a homeowner property where you get the low uh, down payment. FHA, obviously, it has to be owner-occupied. Uh, conventional, you have an option, uh, owner-occupied or non-owner-occupied. But yeah, you can definitely do a group purchase. Uh this is probably coming directly from, or this is coming directly, indirectly from my cousin, Justin, uh, who purchases uh, trailer homes. He, he said, this is a market that's not talked about a lot, um, but trailer homes. And I, I see him driving up the coast of, of the PCH, which is uh, Malibu out here, which is honestly facing the ocean front. And they, they look pretty nice. Um, why is trailer home purchasing not talked about? And is there a benefit of buying a, a trailer home as either a first home or investment property? I don't do trailer home financing, but it's my understanding you don't own the land, at least out here. I think you're just leasing the land. And I think you have to, um, yeah, that's my understanding of it. It is, a, it is a different type of financing typically. I mean, I think FHA might have some mobile home uh, type of financing. Um, but you have to be on a permanent foundation. You can't. It can't be a, mo a mobile home in the sense that it's mobile. It has to be attached to a permanent foundation uh, for FHA as well. My understanding is typically, you know, you may see a low monthly payment for mobile homes, but then, like she said, there's a land lease that you have to pay to actually just park your your home there. So. Your monthly payment for the property might be a thousand dollars, but then your land lease is twelve hundred dollars. So it might not be as big of a difference um, to go that route than a traditional home. Um, but I listen to Bigger Pockets a lot, the podcast, and they're a group of investors. Um, they have different investors coming in to talk about their experience with investing as well. But one of the hosts, um, his niche is buying mobile home parks so he you know i think mostly on the east coast but he goes in and buys these mobile home parks and then collects that land rent um, from you know all of the people that live there and i'm actually reading one of their books right now um, you probably can't see it yeah you can't see it uh the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down so it's written by brandon turner um, there's a lot of really good information in here on how to use other people's money to buy real estate, um, how you can lean on other people and get creative with your financing. So I would recommend listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast for anyone who's interested in investing in real estate long term. I agree. I love that podcast. Listen mm -hmm. to it all the time, always on their website and their blog. Really good information. What's the podcast one more time so am I can post it in the in the chat? Your pockets. Yeah, for me it's it's pretty life changing. I listen to it, you know, on my way to showings. Um, if I'm sitting in traffic for an hour, 
And it's pretty incredible how quickly people can build wealth, um, you know, based on just buying their first property. Uh, this month, this month, there's also an article in the New Yorker on how large in venture capital firms are pivoting away from multifamily and pivoting toward mobile home parks. So it's a it's a good article. It has some a bit of some damaging kind of stats about what happens to the people that actually live there. But all right. So. The big question I have is how does a family that purchases a home or a family that currently owns a home, uh, how do they make sure that that home can be handed down to the next generation? Uh, whether they choose to use the equity into it to purchase more homes, uh, whether they choose to want to try to stay there, uh, how does the current family that's purchasing a home today or tomorrow or owns it now make sure that the next gen uh, has all the resources and or finances to maintain that home. Because uh, I think that's the number one way I see generational wealth loss is that the youth that comes to ownership of the home uh, is not prepared financially, educationally, uh, etc. I mean, education is all it comes down to is education. It's the difference between, you know, the old adage of teaching a man to fish versus giving them a fish. It, it, it's what we emphasize. If we emphasize that we want our children and our family members to share in the gains that we've made, that we've got to position them to understand the responsibilities, the benefits, the liabilities, and the care of these assets. Uh, you know, uh, the dominant culture does that regularly. I think it's something that we need to get into as well, so. Yes, I completely agree. I think it is education. Um, when your grandparents or your parents, you know, get older and they're selling the, and, and it's transition to the, the children, they typically want to sell, but if they realize the benefits of keeping that home and like you said, the tax benefits and just the overall, just have, have home ownership and the benefits to the family in the long term, I think that's the key. You definitely have to educate, you know, the next, the youth, the next generation. Ahmad, do you have any questions? I think there was just one question in regards to insurance, uh, homeowners insurance and important things that first time buyers need to know in regards to what should be, what should they look for in regards to insurance coverage and what do the, the lenders look for in regards to insurance coverage? So basically when you buy a home, you're gonna have, like I said, a principal and interest payment and you're gonna have the property taxes and you're gonna have hazard, i.e. fire insurance. Um, we use a formula, but however, you would shop around at the various local um, insurance companies based on what the loan amount is and the purchase price. They will give you a quote on what your basics would be to cover it. And then if you wanted some additional coverage, they can let you know all the additional things that you could add to your policy. But you would be the one that's responsible 
for um, getting the, you know, the fire hazard insurance. And then you would tell the lender, this is the policy that I'm going with. And you would tell us, you know, what it is, what your premium is for the year. And we would divide that by 12 and add that into your debt to income ratios. Great. Wonderful. wonderful. Um, the, the last one is, I, I think when it comes to first time owners, first time um, um, homeowners, when they're going through this process, they don't realize that a pre-approval doesn't mean that they automatically approved, right? So I think- okay, Well, there's, yeah, yeah let, let me clear that up because um, in the lending business, we have what they call a pre-qualification and we have a pre-approval process. So a pre-qualification means you come to somebody like me, um, you give me your documents, I, you know, I'm a seasoned loan officer, so I would, you know, put the package together. I would run you through desktop underwriting. And if you, maybe you became approved eligible. So this is basically a pre-qualification. Now, if you want to be pre-approved, I would take those same documents and submit them to the underwriter. Then the underwriter would just really um, review what I've done and what the computer has said. And it will say, okay, now you have been pre-approved. That means the underwriter has reviewed your income, your assets, your credit, and say, you have a loan sitting here. All you have to do is go find a home and you know get an appraisal and escrow and whatnot. However, because the lending environment has been so crazy in the last year or so, a lot of banks aren't doing pre-approvals because it takes away from doing the actual deal. So at this point, most of my lenders are just doing what they call pre-qualifications. That is a DU approval through the computer system. We're not submitting it to the underwriter. You're going with what we have basically inputted into the system and it's giving you a pre-qualification letter. Now, can someone have a pre-qualification letter, or, or I mean, it's 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 the language, right? Um, if someone's mm -hmm. been pre-approved and they are looking for a home and they end up negotiating to purchase that home, is there still a chance that they still get rejected for the mortgage? I mean, I guess anything is possible, but typically um, not the case because if you've been, okay, you're talking about an actual pre-approval that where the underwriter has reviewed everything. I mean, maybe you lose your job or something comes up, then of course, you know, you're not gonna uh, be approved. Um, typically, even if you have a pre-qualification letter, more than likely, if you're dealing with a seasoned person, um, you should be good to go because we know what kind of debt to income ratios. We know how to calculate the income. Um, unfortunately, if you go to the larger banks, they're just taking you at your word. They don't realize the nuances. That's what I'm looking for. There's nuances to lending. So if you tell a person, hey, I'm making six grand a month, but the la you just recently got a raise, I have to average your income. So that's going to be, if I'm basing your, your purchase on a $6,000 a month income, but in actuality, after I average the two years together, and you're not on salary, let's just say this is an hourly position, and now your income is 5000 well, that could make a difference, you know, if, if somebody's not really looking at what you have. So you want to make sure you get with somebody that, you know, know the nuances of the lending profession. Okay. That's the key. And, and how do you do that, Denise? Like, how do, if I'm just looking randomly, I would think normally, go oh, just walk into my bank and talk to the banker that's sitting there. But like, how do you really tell the difference between, say, like a broker, a mortgage banker, a loan officer? Like, what? How do you? What's the difference there? Um, 
I mean, unfortunately, the public is just not aware of the differences, unfortunately, because I've had several deals. I had to come in and let's say they went to Bank of America and the guy just simply wrote right. down what the client said. And they're like, hey, we're pre-approved for this amount. They get under contract and now B of A is underwriting their file. And they're like, you don't qualify. Right. You know, and that does happen. I, a that's lot. Happened a, a, a lot. So you want to make sure you get with somebody that knows, okay, I got to average your income. You know, I have to, uh, This is, even though you're making six grand a month now, you're really just making 5,000 from the lender perspective. You know, I have to look at student loans a certain way. Sometimes, you know, people don't realize you have to count student loans, even if you're in deferment. That can be another trap for you. So there's like little things and nuances that people are not aware of until, uh, until they're in the, in until they're under contract and they don't qualify. And then the Bank of America is going to like, okay, well, now you got to bring in, you know, 10% down or 20% down. And people simply don't have that. So it kills the deal. Let me say, I have seen that a number of times in my career. So you just want to, unfortunately, it's, it's, to me, it's just a disservice. Um, to, you know, to the first time home buyer, if they, because they don't know, they don't know if they went to Bank of America, Bank of America said, hey, I'm qualified for 500. And then in actuality, they come back, you know, 30 days later and said, no, you're not qualified. So it just hopefully you have an educated realtor, you know, to tell them, hey, I think you need to go talk to a broker. You know, Bank of America is, is doing you a disservice. And it might be hard to have those conversations when you're first getting a relationship with a client. But hopefully you'll build a relationship up with your client and kind of can say, hey, I think you ought to talk to this person. I know B of A got you that, but you know, it's always good to have a second opinion. Let's just make sure. I always find that the realtor often have a great relationship with a, a, a lender also. So I think it's important to have that relationship with your, with your realtor and ask their recommendations also. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the, real, the realtor doesn't get paid if the deal doesn't close. So they're motivated. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. On our side, at least, we have um, contingencies that are in place to protect the buyer as well. So if something were to happen with the loan, we typically have a loan contingency um, that will protect the buyer and their deposit if something were to go wrong, which um, actually happens a lot these days especially with hours being cut, um, you know, last year at least, you know, maybe people are furloughed. Um, these are all things that are looked at and the buyers protected for the most part in escrow in more than one way. So escrow, I think, favors the buyer and it's easier for the buyer to cancel than it is the seller to cancel. All right, I think we're running out of time, Stosky. We are. Well, Denise, we do not yes. have this presentation. If someone needed to get in contact with you, Ms. Smith, how would they do so? Well, um, I can give out my number and they can call me. I'm available anytime. Uh, my number is 310-947-1665. You can send me a text. I answer all of my calls. I don't work nine to five. If you want to call me at 7.30, I answer my phone. I'm available. Can you, can you say that number again, please? 310-947-1665. Uh, and also your Facebook page. Uh, let's see, it's Denise, uh, what is it? Denise Smith. 
and it's uh, uh, the the mortgage company. Oh, the mortgage company is a uh, Cal Mortgage. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies. Thank you for everyone that joined in today. Uh, this is our second um, topic about real estate. Once again, uh, you know, you, I I just stab, stabbing myself in the heart right now because you know if I'm spending. I'm spending roughly that amount in rent and I should be owning and saving and getting equity and getting the tax benefits. So my goal is to work with you three ladies that's out here in Los Angeles over the next two years, three years tops, to make sure I have a home for myself and for my daughter uh, so I can start building that generational wealth. Uh, Ahmad, you already beat me to the punch a while ago, but you know, I gotta get the second home now. Gotta get the second <laughs> home. And, and for those who are watching this video, if you have your second home or your third home and you're, you're looking to refinance and, and maximize, please, we're gonna post this video. This video is already live, but we're gonna repost it. Come in to the post, comment below, leave your question. Uh, one of the ladies will get back to you. Um, this is an ongoing conversation about building generational wealth and it doesn't stop uh, just because it's in, it ended this video or this webinar ends. Uh, it continues and let's build okay um with that said i say thank you thank you for the knowledge share and i look forward to staying in touch with everyone here likewise thank, thank you so much for us thank you thank you bye-bye